Uh, this isn't the passage I'm going to be spending much time on this evening, but I'm going to start here, at least. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13. I'm going to spend most of my time in the Psalms, but I wanted to open us with this particular verse or passage because I feel like it fits so very well uh, with the reason that we're here this evening. Well, much of our society today, like the church at Corinth, is a hot mess. The church at Corinth was a hot mess located at the heart of a major trade route. This was a city where lots of cultures came together. And so the struggling early church found itself buried amongst sexual immorality, so-called cultural diversity, and poorly restrained corruption. Maybe that sounds familiar. And it's to these young Corinthian believers that the Apostle Paul writes this wonderful letter of both rebuke and encouragement. So here in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, we see this final exhortation to the men of Corinth. It's right at the end of the, book of, of the letter to the Corinthian church. This is what Paul wanted them to go off and remember. The very end. If you're going to forget everything else, please don't. But if you are going to forget everything else, remember this. And here's what he says. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, and be strong. Earlier in chapter 15, Paul also exhorted his readers to be steadfast and immovable. Be steadfast, he says. Keep watch on your lives. Our society, like theirs, has progressed way beyond subtlety, hasn't it? The sin in that society and ours isn't hiding behind the rocks. No, sin is leaping out at us. It was leaping out at them and providing us and them with every opportunity to indulge. We live in a culture, my friends, that wants you to fail. You're aware of that, right? We are constantly being watched by countless people who are gleefully anticipating our failure. Good times, right? That's the world we live in. But I love this concept of being watchful, of being watchful. It's a wonderful picture of standing at the gate or on a castle wall. Sin is the enemy that's climbing over the rampart, and it's your calling to stand firm. Fight back the evils of this world, protecting not just yourself, although that's important, but your family as well. That's your calling as men in the church. And there's the picture of the man of granite. I was feeling so excited with myself, segueing into the theme for the weekend. There's the picture of the man of granite, right? Standing firm, acting like a man, exemplifying strength. Not a physical strength, but a, a spiritual fortitude. That's what God wants for you. But then Paul goes on, and, and, and he balances all of that in the next verse, verse 14. He's exhorted his readers to, to ascend the rampart, to be watchful, to stand strong. And then he adds this. He says, overall, let all that you do be done in love. There's the grace that we need to balance out the granite. Amen? Paul's calling us to be men of grace and granite. Yes, we're called to be alert. Yes, we're called to be firm, to be steadfast, to be strong. But we're also called to be men of compassion, 
loving men, men of grace. We could also add just men, kind men, humble men. So this evening, I want to start with the question, does that exemplify you in Christ? Married men, if I asked your wives, what would she say? Would she say that you're the man who stands firm in the faith, immovable, steadfast, the rock in her life? the exceptional warrior for God, standing at the rampart, alert, alert and, and ready to fight off the enemy to keep Satan at bay? Is that who your wife would testify is, is her husband? Are you resolved to defend the gospel no matter what? Are you resolved to raise your children in a manner that glorifies God and rejects the ways of this world? Are you resolved to reject sin in all of its forms? And are you resolved to be the man who loves his wife? And in, in Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her kind of way. It's Ephesians 5, 25. Husbands, wrote Paul, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He died for her so that she might be sanctified. Ephesians 5, 25 and 26. Is that you? If you're not married and you're here this evening, is that who you're going to be? Are you planning for that? What do they say? If you don't, if you don't fail to plan, you plan to fail or something to that effect. I'm not going to ask you for a show of hands. That's what small group time is for, honesty 101. But, I, but I'm going to bet that some of you, or perhaps even many of you, are going to struggle to answer that question in the affirmative. I'm sure you want to be that man of granite, the man who loves his wife in a sacrificial kind of way, but not at any cost. Surely not any cost. Perhaps you think that the cost that Christ has put on your calling, you know, that take up your cross daily kind of cost is, is unreasonable. It's expecting too much of you. Perhaps you think that the cost that Christ puts on your calling is more than you're able to give, more than you're able to pay. So I'll ask another question. If that's not you, and, and I think to a, to a degree, it's, all of us can say, yeah, you know what, I'm not meeting that goal. I'm not there yet. All of us can say we're struggling in that area. So the question then is, what besetting sin is holding you back? What is it going to cost you to give up your sin and become that man of God who stands ready to defend his own soul and that of his family? Because that's really what it comes down to, isn't it? If you're a believer in Christ, you should be growing in godliness. The Christian life is not complicated. If you're not growing, you're probably marinating in some kind of sin, like a cheap side of beef. A key to growing in godliness is obedience. It's obedience. It's doing what God has called you to do. You see, the man of God must manage to figure out this thing called obedience. If you can't manage obedience, then you're going to be in trouble in this Christian life. If God has called you to be his adopted son, then he wants to be in relationship with you he wants to be known by you, but if you're disobedient, you can bet he's going to break you 
before you get much further on in this relationship with him. Now, and the Old Testament prophets, they understood this concept of heart-level obedience. They got it. Here's what Samuel said. I love this. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. The prophets wrote at a time when sacrifices were all that the Israelites knew. They didn't know anything else. Temple worship and the offering of sacrifices for sin. And yet God declares, yes, he did implement the sacrifices. He never really cared about them. They were simply a picture of something to come. What he cared about, even then, was obedience. Right? The prophet Micah writes, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. We're not talking about outward obedience, although that's good, right? That's the sacrifices back then. That's us doing the right things today. He's talking about obedience from the heart, right? Micah identifies those heart-level motivations. He identifies a, a sense of godly justice, of kindness, of humility, Amos echoes the sentiment. I love this one. Amos echoes the sentiment, and this is God speaking. He says this, I hate, I despise your feasts. That's a strong words, aren't they? And I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your hops, I will not listen. But, and here's what I want, says the Lord, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Justice, righteousness. The prophet Hosea, again, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Do you get the point? Over and over and over again, straight from the mouth of God, God doesn't want your external acts of righteousness. He doesn't care about your external acts of obedience, the, the, the feigned uh, presentation of obedience. He doesn't want your soulless assemblies and traditions or vacuous offerings, uh, meaningless self-aggrandizing songs that you'll hear on the radio. He doesn't want any of that. He doesn't want outward trappings. Instead, he wants righteousness and steadfast love. The man who's walking with God has a heart that is yearning to be obedient, to be attentive, to, to justice, to kindness, humility. And overall, he wants us to know him. He wants us to know him. And he wants you, Christian, to be known as a man of God not because people see you to be that, but because you are that man, a man of God. So this evening, we're going to look at a psalm that reflects the heart of a man who knew God intimately. He was known as a man after God's own heart. But he was also a man who sinned spectacularly. Of course, I'm talking about David. David was a, a terrible sinner. But he was also a wonderful example of a man who had a passion for God. 
He was identified by the Apostle Luke as a man after God's own heart, in spite of the sin that he did. He had a profound affection for God. I like that word, affection. It's a sweet term that, that communicates this wonderful, settled, tender, loving care for something. Affection. The psalmist writes repeatedly that the man of God has affection for the commandments of God. He says in Psalm 119, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. Our affections should also be set on the house of God. David writes, Psalm 27, One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after him, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. David had this unique affection for God. And our affections should be set upon the people of God. Psalm 16.3, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Isn't that beautiful? Romans 12.10, Love one another with a brotherly affection. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 8, Paul writes, Being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel, but our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. And of course, our affection should be set on God himself. Psalm 42, As the deer pants for flowing streams, so, my, so pants my soul for you, O God. Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Psalm 119, with my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. This beautiful picture of, of the psalmist who had this wonderful affection, an affection for God, affection for his people, affection for his word, and affection for his house. So turn with me, please, to Psalm 63. This is where we're going to spend most of our time this evening. Psalm 63. This is a psalm written by a man in desperate circumstances. But in spite of, or, or perhaps even because of, those desperate circumstances, David has paused to write about his desperate love for God. His God. So in the psalm, we're going to see a wonderful expression of devotion and longing, of, of tender affection for the Lord. And so all is not well on the home front for David. A little bit of background. David's own son Absalom wasn't happy with him. He was plotting to seize the throne from his father, and the only way to do that was to kill him. So David's own son is seeking out his father to kill him. So anticipating an attack on Jerusalem, David has packed his bags and he's gotten out of town. And so just imagine how humbling that must have been. He's hiding in the wilderness of Judah. Understandably, this was a very difficult time in his life. He was in very real danger of death at the hands of his own son. And he's in the wilderness of Judah, and it's a dark and difficult land. This is a, a, a serious wilderness we're talking about. And he's being hunted by his own son. And so this is where he decides to sit down and write Psalm 63 of all things. I would be writing a letter going on about how awful life was and how miserable I am. This is what David does. So we're going to read all of Psalm 63 together. This is a Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O oh God, verse 1, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. 
So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your, your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for the jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. So David is, David is wandering around in the wilderness, in the desert. He's being haunted by his own son who is hunting him. And yet, perhaps remarkably, he's still seeking fellowship with the Lord. Not some desperate screaming out, help me God, save me from my circumstances kind of fellowship. He's longing for a sense of God's presence, even in the desert. This is the priority of a godly man. A longing for the presence of God and fellowship with Him. So David, when he sits down in the desert... The first thing he does is to think about, even in these difficult days, God's great faithfulness. The man of God remembers God's faithfulness. That would be our division one, section one, if you're writing notes. The man of God remembers God's faithfulness. The very first thing David does is to seek his presence. Look at verse one. He says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. He's in a desert. It's not just a metaphorical desert, feeling sorry for himself. No, he was in one of the most barren regions of the earth, experiencing both physical and spiritual trials, and, and he uses that as some poetic backdrop for his condition apart from God. He is longing for God. He's been driven from Jerusalem, Remember that for the Jews, that's where God was present in the temple, right? He's, God is in his sanctuary, so that's where they would go to worship him. So in the desert, he's separated from the very heart of his faith. He's literally, physically separated from God, at least in his understanding, because God is in the temple in Jerusalem. But despite the spiritual wilderness, he's still pursuing God. He's still seeking his face. He didn't crumble and feel sorry for himself like I would. He pursued God who was still preeminent in his affections. This is what a man who loves and understands God does. Always, but especially when times are hard, he meditates on God's faithfulness. Takes me a while to get there sometimes. When times are really difficult, it's easy to dwell on our own problems and forget God. We forget what he's done and what he's doing. We forget that he's working in and through the problems in our lives, the trials and the suffering. We forget that God is still good, perfectly good. Even in times of mind-numbing, unthinkable pain or sadness, God is good. But we so quickly forget that. I can remember when I found out 
that my wife, um, she has kidney disease. And, and I, can, I can remember finding out about that. I, I was mortified, and, and, and we went through a grieving process because it's, it's a terminal thing, and, and eventually. And um, I can remember talking to Pastor Phil about it and, and just giving him an update on what was going on. And, and, and I was grieving because this isn't what my life was supposed to look like, you know. God, I, maybe you forgot that, but my life wasn't supposed to get to have these complications. And, and his, he said something that I'll never forget. He said that it takes sometimes, it takes, our, 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 it takes a while sometimes for our theology to catch up with our hearts. Our, our, our emotions go racing ahead of us. It takes a while for our theology to catch up. We might believe and understand and know the right things, but sometimes we just get going with that emotion, and uh, it takes a bit for that, to, you know, just to calm down a little and for the theology to kick in. David was in a difficult place. But he dealt with it by seeking out his God. Perhaps you're dealing with a difficult trial in your life. Perhaps you're dealing with chronic pain. Maybe you're in an exhausting relationship with a difficult wife or children who are in the depths of rebellion. David understood that. Even in his suffering, though, he continued to pursue God. And the psalmists were really uh, generally exceptional in that way. Their affection for God was remarkable. C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said that they knew far less reason than we do for loving God. They didn't know that he offered them eternal joy. Still less that he had sent his own son to die to win it for them. Despite this lack of knowledge, writes Lewis, they expressed a longing for him, a longing for his presence. They longed to live all the days of their lives in the temple so that they could constantly see the fair beauty of the Lord. Through the good times and the bad times, they wanted God. They desired communion with Him above all else, and they cultivated His presence. Simple as he was, David was a man after God's own heart. And he knew God, but he wanted more. He wanted so much more. He knew God, but he wanted to go deeper. He was satisfied in God, but he was never satisfied. This was a man with one driving passion. He wrote in Psalm 27, verse 4, One thing have I asked of the Lord, one thing that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord every day, and to inquire in his temple. David wanted to be close to his God. That was his one thing. So if you could have one thing, what would it be? What would be your one thing? Be brutally honest with yourselves. One of the questions in small group time is to confess what your one thing is. You can look forward to that. What is your one thing? Would it look like David's? Maybe so. Or would it be more likely be something like wealth? I need, I need wealth. I need money for something. I need money for school. I need money to buy a house. I need money for this operation that's coming up. What about security or, or health, power, influence? What about a good job or, or good grades or a respectful wife or, or a college degree or maybe a few moments of respite from chronic pain? Maybe that's your one thing. Or the ability to, the ability to pay the mortgage without having to worry about how you're going to feed your family as well. 
The question I have is, has that one thing replaced David's one thing in your life? When life becomes difficult or even painful, our one thing can frequently divert it, be diverted from what it should be to something else, right? Men will often pursue other passions because reality and what God is wanting to do in their life is too painful or inconvenient. Perhaps you have a difficult wife. You know, that argumentative, exacting, perfectionist wife who never lets you feel like you've accomplished anything good. I trust none of you have that wife, but you can imagine, right? And so you hide away in your work to avoid her, to avoid confrontation, to avoid conflict. Or perhaps you're enduring a, a serious financial crisis and, and hiding away in a, in a porn habit or alcohol gives you a release from the stress and the tension. Often the distraction we employ is obviously sinful, like pornography or, or excessive alcohol use. But it isn't always obviously sinful. Sometimes the tools we use to hide ourselves away from the difficulties of life can look like good things. Immersing yourself in ministry, for example. Compromising on your taxes so that you can have a little extra money to go on a missions trip. Wow. Sometimes the tools we use to hide ourselves away from the difficulties of life can look like good things. But the question is, are you doing these things to avoid confronting your problems? Perhaps you're doing it to escape a difficult home situation or to be seen in a better light by others or, or to earn favor with God. Are you using your objects of passion and enthusiasm to avoid God's sanctifying work? I think that's worth repeating. Are you using your objects of passion and enthusiasm to avoid God's sanctifying work in your life? Is your one thing actually a sinful escape from God's work in your heart? For the, for the man of God, your one thing should be comparable to David's one thing. One thing have I asked of the Lord, he says. One thing that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. You see, David was eminently satisfied in God. And so what was the secret? How can we do that? How can we be so satisfied? We can see that right there in verse 1. He says, Oh God, you are my God. My God, he says. This is a man that was in relationship with God. Not just on Sunday mornings or whatever day they worship. I don't want to complicate things by going into the Hebrew and their, and their, and their culture. So I'm just going to say whatever, Sunday mornings. David knew God. He knew him in an intimate way, he, in a way that goes beyond a character study or, or reading some good books about him. His was an experiential knowledge. He knew God because he had spent time with him. So knowing God isn't about knowing his attributes, studying his attributes, although that's good and you should. You need to do that. But to truly know God, you need to have met him, spent time with him and developed a close relationship with him. It's not an intellectual assent. It involves affection and commitment. It's a, it's a personal encounter, an encounter in which we become aware of our sin, and we become aware of our deep personal need for forgiveness. 
The kind of knowledge that requires the inner working of God's Holy Spirit who fundamentally changes us and gives us a hot response to God and, and true devotion. That's the knowledge God wants for you. Knowing God is a personal encounter. David knew something of the hard trials of life, didn't he? But it's in the trials that fortitude is forged. Faithfulness. It's in the hard times that intimacy comes. For those of you who are married, have you noticed that? You go through a particularly hard time in your marriage, in your, in your, in your life, and, and you're standing lockstep with your wife, praying with her, struggling through whatever it is that you're dealing with. It hurts. You're crying. It, it's, you're turning to God. You're crying out to Him for help. You handle it well. You persevere through the trial. And you come out the other side and you recognize, wow, God is so good. My wife, I never knew how sweet she is. I never knew how supportive, how wonderful, how, how beautiful she is. This is my wife. Thank you, God. You come out of that other side and, and, and your relationship with your wife is so much sweeter than it ever was before. And you find yourself praising God. Thank you. Oh, God, he says, you are my God. David's declaring that God is his God. In the most fundamental sense of the word, lying underneath all the trappings of religion and, and faith is this relationship that permeated everything in his life. His obedience, his, his trust in the Lord, his love for him. It's the bedrock on which the temple stood in his heart, the foundational truth of everything. And he goes on, still in verse 1, Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Thirst is a great metaphor, isn't it? When you have an extreme thirst, I don't know if any, any of you have ever been so thirsty, all you can think about is, is satisfying your thirst. Everything in your world comes down to satisfying that thirst. Everything else fades away as, as, as the man dying of thirst searches for satisfaction. You can't reason with thirst. You can't forget it or overcome it with stoic indifference. True, mind-bending, mind-altering thirst will be heard, and you'll yield to its power. You will do anything to satisfy it. And that's why David chose it as this wonderful metaphor for his desire for God. Earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. There's nothing here where dry as dry can be. I'm, I'm countless miles from your temple, Lord. Parched, desperate for you. This was an all-consuming desperation for communion with God. And it's only God who can satisfy that craving of a soul that's been aroused by the Holy Spirit. Have you ever experienced that kind of craving for God? That kind of thirsting after God that David's talking about? Notice that he's not longing for the ordinances of religion. That was common for the faithful Jews at the time, right? Or even for the great teaching regarding God. He's not yearning for God's power and glory or for fellowship with the saints, even though that's sweet. No, he's yearning for God himself. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that the ultimate test of the Christian is that he can truly say that he desires God even more than he desires forgiveness. 
He desires God even more than he desires forgiveness. We all desire forgiveness. That's appropriate, right? But the height of the Christian experience is when an individual can say, yes, but beyond forgiveness, what I desire is God, God himself. The man of God wants him more than anything else. And David desired God because he had a close personal relationship with God. And clearly he had a high estimation of him. Look at verse 3. It says, Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Keep in mind, Absalom is on the hunt. His son is trying to kill him. And he can say, God's love is better than life. And because his love is better than life, he's going to praise him, even here in the desert. He considered himself to be more blessed in the wilderness of Judah with God's loving kindness than he would have been if he was living a life of pleasure in his palace back in Jerusalem without the love of God. He would rather be in the desert, parched, thirsty, hungry, dry, but with God than back in his palace and without God. He recognized even in the darkest of times that God's power in his life. He was being hunted, and yet he was able to recognize that even when his life is in peril, God's sovereign love is steadfast and sure and is better. Even if his life was taken, he would go willingly knowing that he would be with his God. The Apostle Paul recognized this passion for the Lord and to be with him. He wrote to the Philippians chapter 1, verse 20, It's my eager expectation and hope that now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body whether by life or by death. For to me, he says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. That's good. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I don't know. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Is that your profession this evening? Friends, follow David's lead and seek God's presence and remember his faithfulness. Absolute satisfaction comes when we recognize that God is our God, that God is your God. If you're saved, then he's your God. True satisfaction comes when we want nothing else but him. That's the source of true contentment, my friends. Paul wrote in Romans 8 that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not because we're so great at keeping his love. There's nothing spanky or special about us. Nothing, can I say the word spanky? <laughs> nothing, sorry, will separate us from the love of God because he has made it to be so. He keeps us. Ever asked you a question, why? Why do you keep me? Because he can, Right? He's chosen to. It's his choice to. This is the relationship a godly man has with his God. To live is Christ and to die is gain. For, for Paul, all of life was summed up in Jesus Christ. He had an all-consuming passion for him. The Apostle Paul had a similar outlook. He said, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. For Paul, for Luke, and for David, their calling from God and their love for God was more important than life itself. Temporal things last only for a while. Jesus Christ is for an eternity. 
And he's better. He's better than the temporal things. When Jesus was talking to the Samaritan woman at the well, he told her that everyone who drinks the well water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that he provides will never be thirsty again. That water, he says, will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Isn't that a sweet picture? David had drunk of the spring of, of the love of God, and he was forever satisfied. And even in the wilderness, that satisfaction led him to worship. David praised God in the wilderness, and so should we. Which brings us to our second point. The man of God meditates not just on God's present faithfulness to us today, but he reminds himself of God's past faithfulness. When you're struggling, when you're in the darkest of pits, when life is beyond comprehension hard, is difficult, do you stop and think about God's glorious faithfulness to you in the past? God had been faithful to David. He says in verse 5, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. David knew that God would satisfy his needs. Why? Because God had satisfied his needs before. God had been faithful to do so in the past. So he uses this graphic illustration of fat and rich food. The provisions of God are like a great feast of fat things, God's abundant provision. God had been kind to him, abundantly kind to him. And so he meditates on that kindness. He'd think about what God had done for him. Makes sense, doesn't it? Times are dark, you're struggling to keep your head above water. In times like these, remember God's faithfulness. He doesn't withdraw himself in the dark times. He doesn't. His mercies are new every morning. Lamentations 3.22, you know this passage. Lamentations 3.22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are, they're what? They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord, he says, is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. This kind of meditation can be humbling because it re reveals our own feebleness, our, our insignificance, and our sinfulness. But it also draws us out of this world and into fellowship with Christ. It transforms us and, and we become more like him as we dwell on him. And when we meditate on his faithfulness, we can't help but love him for it. Amen? Focusing on God's past faithfulness during present times of trials fortifies us. It reminds us of God, of who he is and, and what he has done for us. He is our satisfaction. He is the source of our contentment. David wrote in Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is written within, is, is, I'm sorry, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good. That sounds like a good deal, doesn't it? Remembering that God hasn't forgotten you is essential to glorifying Him in your suffering. The man of God remembers what God has done for him. 
and celebrates it. And he also looks forward with anticipation to God's future faithfulness. That would be our third point. Looking forward to God's future faithfulness. Even as, he is, even as he's been faithful, we can expect God to continue to be faithful. As Paul writes, uh, wraps up his first letter to the Thessalonians, he closes with these wonderful words from chapter 5, verse 23. He says this, May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Friends, God makes promises, but he's uniquely qualified to fulfill them. I make promises. I trust, I, I trust that God will allow me to fulfill them, but I'm an imperfect promise maker. God makes promises, and he's uniquely qualified to fulfill those promises. God is faithful, writes Paul to, in 1 Corinthians 1. God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. In 1 Corinthians 10, he writes again, God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. 2 Corinthians 3, the Lord is what? He's faithful. He's faithful, and he'll establish you and guide you against the evil one. Man, God is what? He's faithful. He's faithful. He's called us. He's sanctifying us, and he's protecting us. This is our God. And we can trust him to do all that he has promised. In verses 9 through 11 of Psalm 63, David expresses an expectation that God's faithfulness will continue into the future. He's confident that God will destroy his enemies, even his own son Absalom, that the mouths of the slanderers will be silenced and that he would once again have the opportunity to openly praise God in the sanctuary. He is, he is optimistic. He trusts that God will fulfill his promises. And this section of the psalm brings us back to where we started. We're, we're back in the desert. God's words remind us that life is hard. Life is hard. This is the real world. If we're to be genuinely satisfied with God love, God's love, it has to be right here in the midst of this world's disappointments, in the midst of this world's frustrations, in the midst of this world's dangers and trials and suffering. It's at the very time when his son had betrayed him and was seeking to kill him that David found the Lord's love to be eminently satisfying. Can you claim to be richly satisfied in the Lord during the hard times? It's easy in the easy times, right, in the good times. The litmus test, my friends, is when you're, you're called to worship God even while everything around you is falling apart. That's when we're squeezed and what we're really made of comes bubbling to the surface. To be a man after God's own heart, two things are necessary. Relationship must be established and fellowship must be cultivated. This is what the man of God looks like. Seek God. Remember his faithfulness. Consider his faithfulness today and look forward to, hope and trust in his future faithfulness. God has been and always will be faithful. And if you're saved by the blood of his son, then he loves you. Dwell on these things. And like David, your desire for him will grow. This is what the relationship looks like between a godly man and his God. You need to know God personally. If you haven't been saved by the blood of Christ, and this is simply an academic exercise, it's been some information on Psalms and Corinthians and some other things, really isn't going to help you very much. 
If you haven't been saved by the blood of Christ, you have to realize that you've sinned against a holy God and, and flee for refuge in the provision that God has made for you in your sin. And that's the cross of Christ. My friend, if you're not saved, then this message won't help you. You cannot please Christ and you cannot be in relationship with him. You will not lead your family as a godly man if you're not saved. Your first priority in this room this evening is to seek Christ and repent of your sin. After doing that, you need to put your love for him at the center of your relationship with him. As you think about what God has done for you, past, present, future, and, and most importantly in the sacrifice of his son, as you think about these things, you ought to be moved emotionally. I think a love response is appropriate. And a, a response of affection for our Lord is appropriate. Seek God by sen- spending consistent time alone with Him. Just as you would a spouse, cultivating relationship. Even amongst the pressures of being pursued by Absalom, his own son, that just blows my mind, I can't imagine. I have a 19-year-old son, I can't imagine that. Even amongst the pressures of being pursued by Absalom, David stopped to write songs of worship. He stopped to write songs of worship and meditation. This man was determined to seek God earnestly. And as you seek God by integrating Him into every area of your life, remember God isn't a spoke in the wheel of your life, like some motivational speech. God is at the hub. He should permeate every area of your life. He's at the center of every decision you make. Every relationship, even with unbelievers, how you manage your home, your money, your business, your family, your education, your ministry opportunities, God is there. He's an integral part of it. There's no sacred and secular separation. We don't go to church on Sunday and then go to work the rest of the week and forget about who He is. All of life is related to God. If you're struggling with anger issues or or a difficult family situation or chronic illness, chronic pain, ask the question, what are you doing, God, in this situation? It's okay to ask the question. It's okay. God, what are you doing? Why? It's okay to ask questions like that. Because I promise you, he's at work. He's at work in your life. David's kingdom was in disarray, and he's running for his life, and yet the text says that he was following hard after God. God was at the center of his past, present, and future. We can't do anything about the past. My friends, you may have sinned egregiously in your past, but you can make sure that Christ is at the center of your present, and you can make sure that Christ is at the center of your future. Cultivate relationship. Seek him. Remember his faithfulness, and your desire for Christ will explode in your very soul, and you will look like a man who loves and is close to his God. And you'll be known as a man with a deep and enduring affection for him. And that's what a man and his God should look like. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for David and his amazing example to us of of faithfulness, of love for you, of a passion for you, and and an affection for you that transcends even being hunted down like an animal and and by even his own son. Unthinkable. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your faithfulness today. Thank you for your great work in my life and the life of these men in the past and and what you're going to do in the future. Help us to be faithful ourselves to remember you and all that we do. We love you. 
And we humbly submit this to you in Jesus' name. Amen.